0: Hello and welcome to Out of Office. I'm your host Malika Kapoor.
1: It's probably been the strangest work year of my life, you know. And I'm one of my 58. I've been in work since I was 21, so you know, 37 years.
0: My guest today is Mike Fluitt, the CEO of McLaren Automotive. He joined me from his home for a chat about his career, getting through the pandemic, and some of the difficult decisions he's had to make this year.
1: But having to Except that we had to take cuts to that team that, that we'd built. And frankly, that team that had built that success, that was a huge setback. I'm desperately proud of this team.
0: Despite the challenges he's faced in his lengthy career, and you'll find out he has had a few, Mike remains an optimist.
1: It is true that when you manage through those times, they give you strength and they give you confidence. That, that, that statement about it's always, it's always darkest before they turn on the light is, is really true.
0: I had a wide-ranging chat with Mike. We spoke about the future of cars.
1: But nonetheless, we will move to EV. But for the next 15 years, I would say, 15, maybe even 20 years, hybrids are going to be the the link between the technology that we've all known and, and pure EV in the future.
0: His roots, he's from Liverpool.
1: And you, you walk around the streets, you walk around Strawberry Fields or Penny Lane, or all these places that people know from the songs. I mean, Penny Lane is where I used to go drinking when I was a student. Um, you know, So they are part and parcel of Liverpool. I don't know anybody from Liverpool who doesn't like and enjoy the heritage that, that, is, that is part of the Beatles.
0: And since he's from Liverpool, I had to ask him about the incredible season Liverpool Football Club has had.
1: As you say, we won the, won the league this year. I think after 20-something years, we've been waiting. So it's been a long wait.
0: Here's my conversation with Mike Fluett. Welcome to Out of Office.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure. Pleasure to talk to you.
0: You are one of the most senior people in the automotive industry anywhere in the world, yet you began your career on the floor, on the shop floor when you were working for Ford. What memories do you have of that time? What did that teach you?
1: Gosh, that's right. And it's quite a long time ago. Um, So it was early 80s. It must have been 83, 1983. And I started working Ford's factory in Halewood in Liverpool, in England, um, building Ford Escorts. And my first job was um, actually sub-assembling the rear parcel shelf, the speakers into the parcel shelf and fitting that into a car. And I think we were building, if I remember rightly, we were building 45 cars an hour. So a little, a, little over a, a little over a minute cycle time between cars. I mean it, it was interesting i I'd, I'd gone to university i i'd stayed at university for a year and i I'd, I'd dropped out after a year i didn't enjoy university as a as a theoretical um okay. academic exercise i went back in, in you know years later and studied in parallel with working and and loved it because okay. it was relevant but i went into the factory and i think there's two things and they're the two things that have stuck with me through my life in automotive one is you're working with cars, with engineering. and Okay, in those days, I was working with my hands on the production line. And the other, you're working with people. A lot of people in those days. I think there was about 30 of us in uh, in, in that section of the production area. Um, and I like working with people, you know, and working with cars and working with people are the two things that have been consistent all the way through my career. Um, it was a very, how do I describe that? Liverpool in, in a factory in the 80s was quite a rough Environment, um, you know, a, a lot of banter, a lot of, um, a lot of conversation going on between people all the time. So you were always going. It was, it was an exciting, challenging time. And I, I enjoyed it. But i after, I think it was after about 18 months, I was lucky enough. I applied for what was effectively a trainee role as a foreman. Um, oh. and I was lucky enough to be accepted. And in fact, Ford put me through. Three years of training. Then I did some engineering qualifications, some supervisory qualifications, and came back four years later as a foreman. Um, oh, and that was really my my step up from the production line, and 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 gave me the opportunities that that then developed. I then went on into other production management roles, production engineering roles, and and you know moved my career on from there. But um, yeah, I'll never forget, and I can I can think of it now. I, I will never forget the times on the production line and the things that. Mattered to you, um, you know. So they 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 do form how you feel. You get to a position like mine now. I can walk around the factory and relate to it completely because that was my, you know, that was my environment not that long ago.
0: You've been there, so you know how it uh, how it feels. Yeah. You're from Liverpool, and whenever people think about Liverpool, typically they think about, uh, well, football. And congratulations, you've had an incredible yeah. year. And uh, my son and my husband are huge Liverpool fans, so I know all about that. And uh, and the Beatles. Yeah. So are you a fan of both football and the Beatles?
1: Absolutely. And, and you know, they it, it is a bit of a cliché, but it's also <laughs> completely true. If you go down into... Um, the city centre in Liverpool. You go out down to the pubs. The Cavern pub, where the Beatles played, is still there, um, mm-hmm. and people still go. And you, you walk around the streets. You walk around Strawberry Fields or Penny Lane, or all these places that people know from the songs. I mean, Penny Lane is where I used to go drinking when I was a student. Um, you know, so they are part and parcel of Liverpool. I don't know anybody from Liverpool who doesn't like and enjoy the heritage that that is that is part of the Beatles. And then from football, you grow up in Liverpool either supporting Liverpool or Everton. It's like a lot of a lot of cities or a lot of countries. There'll be two things, you know. And in Liverpool, it's it's Liverpool and Everton. Everton are the slightly uh, older um, football club. Both very very passionate supporters. And I grew up supporting Liverpool, as did my father and my brother. And we used to go uh, to go to the match when I lived in Liverpool when I was younger. As you say, we won the won the league this year. I think after twenty something years we've been waiting. So it's been a long wait.
0: Right. Yeah. We've had celebrations at home as well. So I understand. <laughs> were you a motorsport fan growing up? What was your childhood like?
1: I, I wasn't. I don't come from a, a a background with cars at all. My father was an academic, was a headmaster. My brother's a, a, a lawyer. He's now a judge. My sister's a teacher. So other other than my, my, my mother and father were lucky enough to have a uh, Cars when we were kids and drove, and then dad taught me and my brother and my sister to drive, and we all passed our tests first time with just tuition from my dad, um which is probably probably more his teaching skills than his his uh his automotive but there's no automotive tradition. I just grew up um as a young teenager I was into cycling and partly cycling, but partly I used to buy bikes, take them apart, restore them, and build them for friends and and this kind of thing. Oh, really? And when I when I turned 17, I, I got my first car and I, I, I worked on that and sort of restored it and sold it on.
0: What was your first car? What what model? What was it? It was called a
1: Triumph Herald. It was a convertible Triumph Herald. So <laughs> they look very old-fashioned now. Um but <laughs> it was cool. It was cool at the time, yeah, it really was. And so no, that interest was was mine, and I guess my friends in Liverpool had similar interests. And I wasn't into motorsport until, gosh, really, until five or ten years ago. I would I would go and watch some races, but not not many. Um, you know, the first race I can actually remember watching was Ayrton Senna when he raced for Lotus in um, in nineteen eighty six at Brands Hatch. I remember that. Um but I didn't get into motorsport myself until 2015. And um oh, really? So I was, gosh, I'd already past, just past fifty then, um, and we'd restored. I, I, I very much like restoring old lotuses. They're sort of very light and very, very engaging cars to drive. And the second one we restored was a was a race car from the early sixties. Um, my wife and I decided, well, let's go and get race licenses, and we can test this car. And then when we'd done that, we got drawn in, and we did our first race together in in May, 2015.
0: Who's better, your wife or you? She's quicker, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so um, I I still race historic cars. i raced my Lotus Elan weekend before last in the UK. And I've got three historic Lotuses that I race as a hobby now. But my wife Mia has gone on to race McLarens. She races a McLaren GT4. And wow. um, the last in 2018 and 2019, she won the McLaren championship outright. Um, And this year, she's racing in in British GT. And in the two races so far, she's had one win and one second. So um, so she's the speed demon in the family.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about the lockdown now. What's it been like for you, A, on a personal basis? We've all been working from home for quite a while now. And what's it been like to keep your employees motivated. This has not been a good couple of months for your company. You've had to have some, make some job cuts. It's been hard. So how do you as a business leader, keep your employees motivated?
1: It's all probably been the strangest work year of my life, you know, and I'm, what am I? I'm f- 58, I've been in work since I was 21. So, you know, 37 years. And I guess to take, put the personal side, I mean, there were elements of that lockdown period if I'm being very selfish. Where I was no longer traveling. I was working from home. Um, I got to spend t- time with my wife and actually physically I was more rested than I'd probably been in a long time. Um, because I could, I could easily travel 25, 30 weekends in, in the year and, um, and be working incredibly long days in the office. And when I'm, um, my home is two hours from work. So I, I stay locally when, when I'm, when I'm in the office. So that was a strange element to it, but, but mentally it was deeply stressful you know you think back to the end of march we closed the factory well, we closed both factories the main vehicle factory here in woking and the composites factory in sheffield and almost all our dealerships around the world closed so that you know business just stopped um and we still had costs obviously um yeah to meet in the business well five months in terms of payments out but a payroll going on um and we were desperately short of money you know you Ours is a business that was turning over a hundred million pounds a month, and all of a sudden, you haven't got any income. So right. we and we had been investing heavily as a brand. So we didn't have um, we didn't have huge cash reserves. We'd invested very heavily in our Formula One team, that's become more competitive, um, and in a new platform um, for our vehicles, a new hybridised platform. So we we were in a real tight position um, cash wise. That probably took us three or four months to find our way through. We found the financing and uh, we've resolved our financial position. But also as we as we looked forward, you know, the market the market this year is only maybe sixty percent of sales compared with last year. And I think okay. next year we'll come back a little bit. But I think we got a couple of years before we're back where we were. So I had to take cost out of the business structurally, which very sadly meant we had to make redundancies for the first time In the business, Um, and we we looked literally at the size the company would be based on its on its revenues, and we restructured accordingly. And um, at the end of end of July, um, just under eight hundred of our employees um, left us as part of that restructuring, Um, and that was that was really that was very very sad. Very actually very difficult to take. You know, we put our hearts and souls into building this company and we built it yep. into a successful competitive automotive company. But at the end of the day, the company is the people and to have to let a lot of those people leave the business was, yeah, it was very emotional. Um, but w- we've got to move on. I mean, we have a lot of stakeholders, there's still 2,100 people. So over 2000 people in the company. We've got 97 dealers. We've got 300 suppliers. We've got 25,000 customers. You know, we've got to think of all our stakeholders and keep the business strong and stable and grow it back and hopefully, you know, build employment again off the the back of that. Um, And the way to do that is the team of people we have now, we have to motivate. They have to, you know, pull together, recognize the challenge we've got to move forward. And I think the single biggest thing, and everybody probably said it when they're talking about leadership, but the single biggest thing has been around communication. It's been helping everybody because all of a sudden, instead of all previously, I'd say 80, 80 to 85% of our people were here in Woking, either in the technology center or the factory, yeah. and all of a sudden everybody's at home. So right. communication becomes really difficult at a, at a time when you really need to communicate with people. People need to know what's going on, how's it going to impact them, what do we need them to do? And none of the normal business processes are operating because everything's everything's broken down by this. Um, so you need even more communication to get people to to know what it is they need to do to contribute to actually getting the business um, really running well. So we put a whole host of, of of different things in, ranging from, I mean, as everybody did, the likes of of, of Teams calls, Zooms calls, other things to okay. to run your meeting structures through. We put a whole cascade of communication with our employees. We've also done a huge amount around customer communications. You know, I'm, whether it be writing to to customers, we've done Teams calls with them. All our regional teams have done calls with customers, inviting them to join us. We've produced endless videos and and sort of um, like podcasts of just updating them on design or on product or on what people are doing. Frankly, anything we can think of. There was no you know it's a cliché again but there was no playbook there was no answer to this going That's in right. so it's talking sharing ideas what works try it and everybody was desperate for to to stay engaged um and have communication so you know it was it wasn't easy to satisfy people but it was kind of easy to please people because everybody wanted to to understand better so a lot a lot of energy went into it and and frankly i i've been delighted i've been really positively impressed by the morale of people as they've been coming back into into the technology center and the production center and talking to people. Given what everybody's gone through, considering all of that, the morale and motivation of people is just amazing. I mean, how the positivity is, it, it, it's quite inspiring to, to see. OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left
0: at bloomberg.com/techsf. You obviously value communication a lot as and that's a priority for you as a business leader. Is there a particular mentor or a few mentors who have inspired you to be the kind of leader you are.
1: There are people who I've worked for. Yeah, yes, there are, but sort of not, maybe not officially. You know, we've not sort of said I'm mentoring Mike. But I, I, I
0: yeah, when, but I, when I, yeah, you. when
1: I've worked with people I admired, you you can't help in a way start adopting and copying things you've seen them do successfully and build in. So I worked with a guy right. when I worked at Rolls Royce and Bentley back in the mid-90s in the UK. um, The chief executive was a gentleman, Graham Morris. And um, Uh he had an ability to talk to everybody and everybody as an equal. Um, And and actually, my father is exactly the same. It it doesn't matter whether they would be talking to the the king in the country or or talking to the the poorest person in the country Uh Or, or, or age. They just talk to them as equals. And it's lovely to see how people respond to that. And Graham could... Be talking to the board of directors of the company, or he could be talking to the guys on the shop floor, and he immediately engaged. He could immediately communicate and relate to the people he was talking to, and as a and, and as a consequence, people people really bonded and gelled with him, and you could he could lead them because they related to him so well, and that was a great lesson. As I say, that, that, I could see that with Graham, I could see that with with my father, and then years later in Ford, and we're going back to after this sort of financial crisis of. 2008, 2009, I was, I was actually living in Germany. I was in quite a senior position with Ford Motor Company. And two out of the three giants in the US went into bankruptcy, Chrysler and General Motors. And Ford at that time was run by Alan Mullally, who was the chief executive. And, um, I was fortunate enough to be, um, reporting to Alan on a number of issues and having quite a close relationship with him. And he, his leadership of what was then a global population of about 300,000 people in Ford across the world was incredible. And he, he had this one Ford mentality where he talked to you as, you know, a, a 300 individuals gelling as one team that were going to make Ford a success and we're going to bring Ford through this crisis. And it was phenomenal. I mean, he really did. In fact, if you gave one person the credit, for why Ford came through that successfully, it, w- it was Alan, without a doubt. Really? Um, and people like that are inspirational.
0: And you also worked for Ron Dennis. I did. Who is quite a legend. What was that like?
1: Amazing. And, I, and I'm I, I'm very fortunate to have worked um, for Ron. So I, I worked for Ron in two ways, really. When I came into the company, he was chairman and chief executive of the Formula One team and the automotive company. And oh. then from 20, oh, well, let me get it right, 2013, I became chief executive of the automotive company, but he was my chairman. Um, and he was also chairman and chief executive of the racing company. So we had a very close relationship.
0: And um, he's the one who persuaded you to leave Ford and join is. is that right? He is. And
1: uh, when Ron wants to persuade you to do something, it's very difficult to resist. He's, uh, <laughs> he's As
0: we've seen, because uh, you did join the company.
1: Uh, absolutely. He's, he's inspiring, but, but in a different way. I mean, when Ron focuses on doing something, it, it, it happens. He, he's incredibly intense, incredibly obsessive about detail. Nothing gets in his way. He, he's, he's got an ability to persuade and influence people on an individual basis that is, is without equal. I mean, he's the supreme negotiator that I've ever met in my whole, my whole life. Um, but his, his understanding and passion for the McLaren brand, his understanding of the detail, the striving for perfection, the technology leadership, always pushing for more, always being absolutely relentless about wanting to be better, is, I mean, wears you out, but is phenomenal. And and he he set the tone. He took McLaren from 1980 to when he he retired from McLaren in, in, in 2017, he took it from a, a small, a small team in a, in a small business unit in Woking to uh, you know, the, the global motorsport success that it is. The automotive company over three and a half thousand employees, um, and and it was his personal drive that that that, that took it there. So um, yeah, I've been very fortunate to work for some great people.
0: McLaren keeps on innovating, and I know you're committed to an electric future. Tell us about that. I know it's still a way off when it comes to motor racing and electric vehicles, but what are your plans for that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and a little bit, it's, um, it goes back to what, some of what we just said about, about Ron, that, that Ron would always describe us as a technology company. And it, it wasn't a technology yeah. company in the sense of technology for the sake of technology. It was that technology is what enabled us to be the greatest motor racing company in the world to build the best supercars in the world. So. We're always innovating. We're always looking for how we can provide a better experience. And and for us, it's how can we build a better supercar? Well, the answer is, frankly, by continuing to harness technology to to do that. And whether it be the the lightweight carbon fiber structures that our cars are built around, that make our cars lighter, stronger, safer as a consequence, or the move forward with with powertrain technology. And I mean, I I think it's an, an inevitability that we will be driving ev cars globally across all segments one day including supercars which i still find the hardest um to accept i mean i've driven lots of ev cars as commuter cars you know and the, oh. and, the, and the, they're they're excellent they're, they've got lots and lots of advantages for a supercar it's a bit more challenging because there's a whole range of elements that make the car compelling the the noise the vibration the feel but nonetheless we will move to ev but for the next 15 years, I would say, 15, maybe even 20 years, hybrids are going to be the, the link okay. between the technology that we've all known and, and pure EV in the future. So we've designed a new um, lightweight hybrid platform for our supercars. We'll launch the first one at the start of next year. And, and frankly, that will be the future for us for probably the, the next 10 years to come. They're light. They're clean in terms of emissions. They have EV capability, but I'd still argue, most compellingly, they're just incredible supercars to drive.
0: Now, McLaren Racing and McLaren Automotive, they are linked, aren't they? I mean, at least in terms of perception from outside. You know, a lot of people even confuse them for being exactly the same company. How does the performance of the racing team? affect your day-to-day operations, if at all?
1: We are two separate companies, the automotive company and the F1 racing company. Uh, Zach Brown is the chief executive of the racing company. Um, We have common shareholders, so we're linked. We have a common brand. Zach's office is across the corridor from from my office Mm -hmm. here, and we're we're, we're great friends. We just send each other WhatsApp messages um, this morning because he's been out in Indy over the weekend as the team raced at, uh, at Indianapolis. There's a link. You know, you know, the the brand is common. We have a number of common partnerships with people like Richard Neal, um, with Gulf, who we've recently signed with. Um, we share some engineers, some technology across the business, mainly in the areas of aer- things like aerodynamics, control systems, structures. Our customers in the automotive company love form- Formula One, and they're delighted to see how successful McLaren were in, in Formula One racing last season, and. And started this season incredibly well. And um, well, Zach's drivers all drive our cars. So um, Lando Norris and Carlos Sainz both drive McLaren supercars as their, as their choice. So, you know, lots lots of links, but we are distinct companies as well.
0: Mike, have you ever had any setbacks in your career? And if so, what's been your tool for getting back on your feet?
1: Yeah, sure, sure, sure I have. And um Different things at different times. But, you know, I would have to say this year has been, you know, one of the biggest challenges. If you think we launched this company in mid 2011, um, mid 2011, we sold our first car, our first dealership. And we've gone from there building year on year on year to the point in 2019, we'd grown our sales by another 11%. We turned over a billion and a half. We made over 150 million profit. Really, and we were truly competitive, you know, our cars were being compared with the best cars from Ferrari, Porsche, Lamborghini, and some people thought ours were the best and some people thought that a competitor car would be the best. But that, we'd really established ourselves in the market and having to go through what we have and not so much the financial stress or even the reduced sales, but having to accept that we had to take cuts to that team that that we'd built and frankly, that team that had built that success. That was a huge setback. I mean, that, you know, that did make me personally pause for thought as to do I want to do this again? You know, do I mm. have have I got the will to to do this, yeah. to rebuild this? I think it only took me about 24 hours to say, yes, I have. I, I'm yeah. desperately proud of this team. Um yeah. I want to be a part of us building it back. But that was an it was an, that was an enormous setback. That was that was hard, hard to accept at different times in my career there have, been, there have been different things you know there's been um I, that, that period in 2008 that that recession was dreadfully difficult at the time i was running a business a subsidiary for ford motor company out in in turkey and um, we built that up and actually we managed all the way through that period and we had our, our weakest quarter was the first quarter of 2009 but we still just about made money but i was also participating on a broader scale uh, with Ford and then moved back into Germany and working there just to keep the company solvent. you know we were literally having cash meetings every single day to oh. keep that company afloat and I can remember our share price fell to below a dollar, and we did stay afloat and um, we did keep Ford in one place um great leadership, but everybody pulled together and we climbed back dizzy heights then of seventeen eighteen dollars a share that the Ford Motor company was was trading at and that was a difficult time, but you know it, it. It is true that when you manage through those times, they give you strength and they give you confidence. That that, that sure. statement about it's always it's always darkest before they turn on the light is is really true. You know, when it when everything yeah. seems dreadful, if you just believe you're doing the right thing, then just keep doing it, and it will come. It will work through it, it, in time. You just need to have that resilience and and that confidence to keep driving forward.
0: That's a beautiful note to end it on. I do love that expression. It's always dark before they turn the lights on. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. That was a pleasure. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you very much.
0: That was Mike Fluitt, the CEO of McLaren Automotive. And that's out of office for this week. Remember, you can catch up on other episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Bloomberg Terminal, our website, or on Twitter. This episode was produced by Jordan Gasparay. I'm Malika Kapoor. Thank you for listening, and stay well. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal.